We are glad that you joined us today. Harrison Church is constantly being blessed with its members and volunteers who are devoted to experiencing and sharing the amazing Word of God. If you wish to contribute to his ministry, please visit us online at harrisonchurch.org forward slash donate. Thank you again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Thank you, Charles. You may be seated, everyone. Good morning to you. Thank you for uh, coming on this morning. It really is a beautiful Sunday morning. going to be, what, eight, near 80 degrees, kind of a taste of spring. It's a good day to talk about the rapture, you know. Uh, all right, I, I do need to kind of catch some people up. You may be visiting with us, uh, but for the last few weeks, uh, we've been doing this little series, kind of a two-fold series. We've been uh, uh, receiving some of your questions and you know, these are the kind of questions that you've had about God or the Methodist Church, the sermons that you would like to hear me preach on, things that are curiosities to you. And we've also kind of done a little series on some of the you know, sayings that Christians uh, utter to each other. The Lord only helps those who help themselves. So today, I'm going back to the question. And it was the question I received more than all the others. And this is the sermon. I've got to just be honest with you. It's been keeping me awake at night. Um, so, and the question is, what do Methodists believe about the rapture? Uh, I have to tell you this, uh, right after the last service that I preach, 8.30 in the morning on the rapture, you know that went over well, and uh, Kyle said to me uh, afterwards, he said, Shane, you know, you've been in ministry long enough, you ought to know that there are some questions uh, that are best left unanswered in ministry, but I'm going to do my best to answer this question. This is what we're here for. And I remember the words of uh, Jonathan Sachs, a great rabbi. He says, what is the point of being a religious leader if you can't wade into controversy from time to time? So let me, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to read the scripture. And uh, I did encourage you, if you receive our emails every week, I did uh, ask you if you have a Bible to bring it with you. We're going to actually do a little bit of a Bible study here. If you didn't uh, bring it, that's okay. We'll have the readings projected on the screen. So we're going to come back to this reading, and there will be one more. And we're going to just kind of uh, parse it a little bit, kind of analyze what's going on. Uh, so let us uh, stand as we are able. I'm going to read from uh, Matthew 24. Now, I could have made an error. Can you go ahead and put the reading on the screen, Tim? I don't know if I start with the six. Uh, yes, I did. All right, so I'm going to be reading from Matthew 24. I'm going to start with verse 36, and let's just go through this. All right, Jesus is speaking here. And Jesus says, but about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus is here talking about his return. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Everything was going great. Until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. We're going to get back to that. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together. One will be taken, one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. This, my friends, is the Word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <laughs> Pray for me. All right. All right, so let me just get right down to the question. What do Methodists believe about the rapture? You know what the quick and easy que uh, answer to that question is? It depends on which Methodist you ask. 
There it is. Depends on which Methodist you ask. What I mean by this is that there is actually not an official teaching in the Methodist church about the rapture. And if you don't know what that is, I'll, I'll define that in just a moment. There's no official teaching in the Methodist church, okay? And that's mainly because, I would argue, is that this belief in a rapture did not exist until after the establishment of the United Methodist Church. What this means then is that what I'm going to be talking about for the next few minutes in answer to your question, this is the number one question, is a matter of interpretation. It's a matter of interpretation. So I'm getting ready to kind of go out on a limb here. I got the, the lights on me. And I'm going to give you my interpretation. But it is not a matter of salvation. All right, whether you agree or disagree, whether you believe that there's a, such a thing as a rapture or not, it has no effect on you being a Methodist. And it has no effect on whether you are saved. We just got to get that out of, the, out of the way. Because I can remember many years ago uh, watching some uh, preachers on TV who were kind of talking about the rapture. And they said things like, you know, if, if you don't believe this, then you're, 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 you're going to be a, among the unsaved. Or if you have a preacher who kind of questions this idea of a rapture, he's a false prophet, you are in trouble. Can, can I at least make this clear right off the bat? That our salvation has nothing to do with how we interpret the scriptures. Our salvation, we are saved by Jesus Christ alone. By, by his grace alone. Not how we interpret certain passages of scripture. So, you can agree with me or disagree. Can you tell that to your neighbor? You can agree or disagree here. Yeah, I do that in the Pentecostal church. It's actually a very effective tool to do that. <laughs> You can agree or disagree, but I'm going to give you my, my presentation on this. Okay, so what is the rapture? All right, in a very small nutshell, my understanding is this, that the rapture is this belief that Jesus is going to return to this world in kind of two phases, two phases. In the first phase, according to rapture doctrine, Jesus will come and he will rescue the true believers. He will whisk them away. He will rapture them. So you'll be with some people and one might disappear, planes falling out of the sky, all of that thing. And uh, what will happen is that once the true believers are raptured, are taken away, then there's going to follow a seven-year period of just tribulation in, in earth, on earth, right? It's just going to be hell on earth. After seven years, Jesus will return again. And this time he will return with the true believers that were raptured along with all the saints in heaven. And then he will set up his kingdom on earth and he will reign on earth for a thousand years. All right, that's kind of rapture in a nutshell. It's kind of a twofold thing. Now, about 20, 25 years ago, maybe a little bit longer actually, uh, this uh, doctrine became very popular among us with these uh, series of books by Left, the Left Behind series of books, Tim LaHaye, bestseller. I've never read it. I, I know people who did. They said it was actually riveting stuff. Very good story, but it became very uh, popular. All right, so that's kind of how it became mainstream for us. So that's kind of what rapture means. Now, what we need to understand is that this belief in a rapture actually has a history. And it has a history that we can trace to a young girl in about 1830 from Scotland who had this vision of hers of a two-phase return of Jesus. Now, on the back of your order of worship, you're going to notice I've got some key words for you. I do this for your edification. You can take this home. You can do your own research. That's what it's there for. But this young girl named Margaret MacDonald, that I say Margaret, it's Margaret MacDonald, 
At 15 years of age, she had this vision, right? Jesus was going to return once, and he was going to take the true believers off the earth, and then he would return again with those true believers after this period of tribulation. Now, this young girl's vision caught the imagination of an evangelist in those days named John Nelson Darby. John Nelson Darby. He was British, like John Wesley was, and he was evangelist. He went around preaching to different churches and to different groups. He was blown away by this doctrine. And so what he did is that he, he took what this young girl was saying, he, he modified it, and then he went into the Bible to kind of find places that seemed to back this, this idea up of a rapture. Now, how did it come to America? John Nelson Darby was uh, someone who was, he considered himself a missionary. He came to the United States several times, in particular the southern part of the United States. He preached a lot of sermons on this idea of rapture, and it caught fire, especially in the southern United States. And even today, you can go to other parts of Europe or other parts of the United States, the rapture idea is not as widespread as it is here, okay? So that was in the 1800s, John Nelson Darby. And so people started to believe this, but it was in the year 1909. It's in your key words. With a man named Cyrus Schofield, you can look him up, he really was taken by this idea of a rapture. And so what he did is he got some other scholars who seemed to agree with John Nelson Darby, and they put together what's now known today as the Schofield Study Bible. And I bought one years ago without knowing that I bought a Schofield Study Bible. I just thought, you know, it was the word of the Lord. But what's inside of this is all kinds of notes interspersed throughout the scriptures. And in these notes, you'll see a little footnote that kind of shows you how this verse in Isaiah or this verse in Daniel kind of applies to something called a rapture. And man, this actually sold hundreds of thousands of copies. And so after 1909, especially in the South, uh, this idea of a rapture really really became kind of a household word. But it was after 1909. So that's the history of all this as well. Now, John Darby, if he was going to stand before you preaching, he would tell you, he says this, that there is not one particular place in the Bible that teaches the rapture. It's not in just one place. What you have to do, he said, is you have to take a verse of Scripture from this book, and then you got to take a verse of Scripture from this book, and then you got to take a verse of Scripture from this book, And then this book, and then you put it in a blender, you hit puree, and then you pour it out. He would say that. He would admit this. Now, there were two verses of Scripture. I want us to do the Bible study now. There were two passages of Scripture that Darby really thought taught this idea of a rapture. True Christians will be whisked away with Jesus. Jesus will return with them after a seven-year tribulation. They come from Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So here's what I want us to do. If you brought your Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to look at verse 40. If you didn't, uh, Tim or someone, could you put it up on the screen here? All right, let's start with the Matthew passage. And what I want us to do is is just kind of break this down and, and ask what's going on. I'm not telling you you can't believe in this, right? All I'm saying is let's look at the scriptures. Let's not be afraid. Okay, so Jesus says here, two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. 
Two women will be grinding meal together. One will be taken and one will be left. Now, if you, if you just isolate that, boy, that really sounds like something's going on, right? Like somebody's just going to vanish. And, wow, there, there, there's going to be this rapture. But here's, here's what I want us to do. I want us to expand this passage and put it in its context. I'm going to start reading. I'll read with you, beginning with verse 37 verse 37. All right, the next slide, we have one. Okay, so this is what Jesus was saying. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing, this is going to be important, until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, the key phrase you need to keep in mind is that phrase, as the flood came and what? Swept them all away, so too will be the coming of the Son of Man. So what Jesus is doing here, teaching his disciples, is that when he returns, it's going to be unexpected, and it will be like a judgment, God's judgment on the world. Jesus' return will not be good news for everybody. It just won't, especially for those who are in charge Right? And Jesus is likening his return to something like the flood waters of Noah, which was God's judgment on the world that came upon the people unexpectedly. Now, I want you to ponder that phrase, swept them all away, so too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Next slide. And the very next thing that he says, then two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Do you see what's going on here? If we put this in context, Jesus is talking about flood water sweeping through. Can you imagine two things just standing right here? And when flood waters sweep through, do flood waters take things? Yes, they do. But he's talking about the flood waters of Noah that sweep through, one will be taken, one will be left. Now, here is the question that I have to ask. Of the two people, keeping the context in mind of sweeping waters of judgment, who do you want to be? Do you want to be the one swept away, or do you want to be the one left behind? You want to be the one left behind. You want to be the one left behind. The one taken was the one swept away by the waters of judgment like in the days of Noah. The one who remains was the one spared. Say, do you see where we're going here? Just, just, just keep the context in mind. My point is, if we take the context seriously, you'll want to be the one left behind. Just as in the days of Noah, the waters came sweeping through, took some people. So it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. It'll be like the waters sweeping through. The waters of judgment sweeping people away. That's important. That's important. Okay. That's the first one. We want to be the one based here in the context of the left behind. Now, the other one is a little more difficult, another passage here. Uh, it's a favorite of the rapture teachers. Uh, this will come from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. This is kind of fun. I feel like one of those TV preachers right now, you know? <laughs> turn with me now. Let's look at this together. This is good, though. We need to do this. All right, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'm rocking here, the floodwaters. All right, Paul writes this word, and I'm going to put this in context for us, but let's just read the whole thing. 
Paul writes, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died. That's going to be important for us in a minute. So that you do not grieve as others do who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet. Now, let me stop there for just a minute. This trumpet stuff, Paul is a Jew. He's immersed in the Jewish scriptures. Does anybody know what he's referring to? Where did the trumpet blow in the Old Testament? When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the law. Okay, so he's thinking about someone coming down like a trumpet, okay? But then he says this, Christ will descend from heaven. You see that? So what's Jesus doing now in this passage? He's descending. We'll get back to that. And then he says the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now I'm going to get back to that last verse in a moment here. But we, we need to put this in context. This is critical. What Paul is doing in this passage is he is consoling these Christians at this church in Thessalonica, which is in Greece. He is consoling them about a worry of theirs, and their worry is what is going to happen when Jesus returns? What's going to happen to those who have already died? Are they going to miss it? Is it only going to be for those who are alive when Jesus returns? And what Paul is saying here is no. When Jesus returns, those who have died will rise. Right? They're going to rise from their graves. They're going to do this. And then we who are alive, we're going, to be, we're going to experience something radical and a change in our own lives as well. So here's the point. The whole context here is not rapture. It's resurrection of the dead. That's what Paul is addressing. He's addressing the resurrection of the dead. That's the first thing. What happens to those who have died? Well, they're going to rise from their graves. That's our ultimate hope as Christians. The day when we who have died shall rise as Christ arose and we'll have new glorified bodies. Now, it's this next verse that really trips us up. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, it may sound like I'm getting ready to do some uh, seminary voodoo on you. But I'm not. This is not voodoo. I'm getting ready to, to pull over you. You see that word there, meet the Lord? See that? We will meet the Lord. This is critical. Because Paul actually uses a specific word in Greek that means a specific circumstance. He could have used another word that we translate as meet, but he didn't. He used the word, and you can see this on the back of your bulletin, apontesis. 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 Say it with me. Apontesis. Okay. Do we have a slide for that, Patty? Do we have a slide for the apontesis? There we go. That's the word he used. Now, I'm going to ask, and he doesn't know I'm going to do this. Kyle, can you come up here for a minute since you gave me such a hard time the last service? Come on up here right now. Come on up here right now. All right. All right. So you just stand right there at the edge. Now, the word apontesis means in the Greek, 
when you would go and meet a royal dignitary outside the city limits. All right, you know a dignitary is coming, and so what you would do is you would go meet the dignitary like this. Hello, royal king. And then what you would do, take my, take my elbow, you would, you would escort the dignitary into the city. So what we translate as meet could very well be translated as escort. We will escort the Lord. Now, what's the implication there? Back up there for a minute. Okay, so, so imagine, all right, just taking Paul literally. Just, just imagine we're actually taking it literally, that we're going to actually float up into the air. What Paul is saying, though, is that we're going to meet the Lord, right? But guess which way we're going? That way. We're going to escort the Lord into his rightful place into this world. You're following me here. All right, thank you, Kyle. Everybody give him a round of applause. The, here's, the, here's the point. Here's the point. It's not as if, and this is what some raptures, rapture theologians teach, it's not as if we're going to meet the Lord halfway. Uh, he'll come this way, and we'll go this way, and then he'll take us back up into heaven. What we're going to do is meet the Lord and bring him down. Right, we're going to escort him down, and it's only going to happen one time, not twice. And you have to remember the words of uh, verse 16, and you can underscore this if you have your Bible. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven. So the whole context has Jesus coming down once, okay, not, not twice, okay? You follow me there. You don't have to agree, but that, that's just the context. Let's just think about the context. All right, so let me just kind of wrap, wrap this sermon up, okay, just looking at those two. As you can tell, I question the teaching of an end times rapture. And it's okay. Don't let that, don't be afraid. This is not a matter of salvation. This is an interpretation issue. But there are three reasons why. Number one, rapture theologians teach that there will be a kind of a twofold return of Jesus. He'll return once for the true believers who will be whisked away. He'll return again to the earth to set up his kingdom for a thousand years. The New Testament only teaches one return of Christ. Just one. Okay? Number two. The belief in the rapture is this belief that, that those who are raptured are going to be spared great suffering. And then they will return onto the earth when it is going to be healed and glorified and when Christ shall reign. Now, as your pastor, I have to question this. These are just the thoughts that I'm having when I interpret. There's really no place in the New Testament that promises that the Christians shall be spared from suffering. Paul says in 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy that those who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Jesus said, you will carry your cross, take up your cross and follow me. So Jesus never promised his believers that they will be spared from great tribulation. They may actually experience it. Sometimes it's hard to follow Jesus. It's hard to be persecuted, but just that itself, I question. And number three, when you read the Gospels, and this is just your your pastor talking now, when you read the Gospels, who was Jesus almost always for? He was almost always for those who were left behind. Those who were left behind by by the political establishment, those who were left behind by the religious establishment, those who had no voice, Jesus was always for the people who were left behind. 
in this world. Pastor of mine, when I was a layperson like you are, listen to me, I remember being in the pews, and this is when the Tim LaHaye series was really catching on, and I can remember he preached a sermon on the end times, and I'll never forget what he said. He ended his sermon by saying this, and I'll end my sermon by saying this because it has formed me. He said, folks, I love you. He says, but I'll tell you, if I'm wrong and the rapture theologians are right and there's going to be a rapture, he said this, I want to be left behind. He says, because, by gosh, they're going to need a pastor. Those people are going to need a church. They're going to need some place that's going to bind their wounds and go through this stuff with them. He says, I want to be left behind. And I, I remember I was so struck by that. And now that I'm a pastor, I get it. I want to be left behind if it's true because these people are going to need a pastor. And they're going to need to come to a place to hear some good news. And I want to be there to bind up their wounds. And I want to do it in the name of a God who is always for the people who are just left behind. That's who he is. So whether we agree or disagree on the rapture, is it's not going <laughs> to bring us into heaven or not. The only thing that will bring us to heaven is Christ alone and his grace. But what we can say and affirm is that Jesus one day shall return. I long for that day. I look for that day. I want to be expectant for that day. I don't want that day to catch me off guard because he's going to turn some things upside down. And, and our hope as Christians is that he's going to reign and he is going to rule. I'm going to ask the the singers to come forward and the band as we leave. And, and, and the, the good news for us is that, man, whether we're raptured or whether we're not, we are going to see the king. He is going to rule this world. And as Paul said to the Thessalonians that we didn't read, the last thing he says was encourage each other with these words. He didn't say scare each other with these words or argue with each other over these words. He said encourage one another. So let us be encouraged. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Harrison Church. To stay connected to Harrison Happenings, please follow us on Facebook or Twitter at HarrisonUMC or online at HarrisonChurch.org.